Let's thank God. Dear Lord, we are grateful for your word and grateful for the company of the saints in it. We'd ask that we would stand before your apostles ready to be undone and remade into your son's likeness. In your son's name we pray. Amen. As you can tell, there are pictures on your sermon notes. They're kind of low res, and I apologize for that. Um, and it doesn't even show the place that I wanted to show with this map. But I like the colors. It's the right part of the world. This is, we're speaking out of Thessalonians. I didn't even note that on the, you know, they didn't say First Thessalonians. I, you can tell from the first verse says the Thessalonians. I apologize on so many levels. But uh, Thessalonica is, if you look at your little map there and try to squint so it comes into focus, uh, you see up at the top of the Aegean there, there's that three-fingered hand, Chalcedice, that sticks into the Aegean. And right at the left-hand corner at the top is Therma, which is now Thessalonica, still Thessalonica. Give you the dates of that, 315 BC, named Thessalonica, after Cassander's wife. They say, who are these people? Well, Cassander and Thessalonica. Um, Thessalonica, Cassander, you say, where are we in history? After Alexander, the Hellenistic monarchies that split up his empire, Cassander was one of them. Okay? He was married to Alexander the Great's sister, Thessalonica. She was named Thessalonica because her dad, Philip, are you getting all this down? It will be on the test. <laughs> Philip II of Macedon, Alexander's father, and Thessalonica's father, uh, had defeated the Phocians with Thessaly at the Battle of the Crocus Field in about 352 BC the day Thessalonica was born. So he named her Thessaly, because the battle was in Thessaly, Nike Victory. That's why the shoes are called Nike's Victory. So Thessala, now you got too much information about what's not even on the map. Therma became Thessalonica. Paul goes through there a few times. I have the references here at the top of the page, Acts 17, 18, 20. Um, the book is probably written between 49 and 51. And with that background, you know, this is one of those, well, uh, Thessalonians is a very, you like reading books like this. It's much more positive. You don't get this being chewed out in Galatians and really feeling like you're a sinner in Corinthians. Thessalonians is one of those nice bunch of believers. They did well with what was preached to them. Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy. That's Paul, Silas, and Timothy. To the church of the Thessalonians, in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace. We give thanks to God always for you all, constantly mentioning you in our prayers, remembering before our God and Father your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope, in our Lord Jesus Christ. Do you have people like that in your life that you think back? 
that your earlier times in the walk, you haven't heard from them in a, in a long time. I had experience with it last night. We were hanging out, not too late, with the Sandmeyer. Came home early. As I walked in the door, my phone rang, my cell phone. There was nobody there. It sounded like someone had butt-dialed me. You know, there's noise in the background, voices, nobody telling me hello. Then finally a voice came on. I didn't recognize it, and there was a good reason. I hadn't spoken to this person in 36 years. He had come to Christ through a Bible study I had in the Navy base in Southern California, and then had married a uh, Mexican girl, uh, Martha, that's what her last name was. And uh, I, I got out of the Navy and they dropped off the map, but I thought they either died or moved on or who knows. But they were wonderfully still walking in the Lord. They go to Calvary Chapel, still live in El Centro, California. And they had just been thinking about the days of those Bible studies back in the 70s and the retreats we had, and so forth and so on. And they had no idea where we were, so their 26-year-old daughter, who understood the interwebs, just went out looking for Evan Wilson and found a phone number, and they called me. It's just a good fellowship. And you find yourself thanking God for certain people. Thanking God that, that his mercies, his grace, continues with some people. You want to mention them in your prayers. You don't know who's praying for you. When uh, Pete told us that uh, Gideon's prayed for our church the 19th of every month. It's reassuring. Somebody's holding you up in prayer. You want to be sure that they're thanking God for you. You know, you think, and I know some people are praying for me. And uh, there's a few reasons that they're praying for me. Do people thank God for you? Remember, remembering, verse 3, before our God and Father, your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. Well, you recognize the faith, hope, and love part, right? The, the work of faith, the labor of love, the steadfastness of hope. That descriptive? Because that's what Paul in his prayers for the Thessalonians was remembering about them. They were the business, that's the word work, the business they were in was their faith. The word labor, just as it expresses to you when you say the word hard labor, sentenced to 15 years of hard labor. Labor is a trouble. The word has to do with being burdened with this. It's not labor like labor relations and strikes and high wages and all the rest and, and, and benefits. It's about the work part. It's about the trouble. I've been in enough conversations with Christians who can't figure out how to love people. You'd think that Christians, after 2,000 years, with love being the centerpiece of your ethics, right? Because if you love your neighbor as yourself, you 
kept all the law and its commandments. You've, you've managed to fulfill the law of God because you love. And Christians still come along and say, well, what is this love? What love? What's love? Do I have to love or do I have to like the person? Or they, they don't even know. They don't know what they're doing. And they somehow think if they could just make it an emotional love, it wouldn't be a labor. It wouldn't be a trouble. Because you know that the Christian has to walk into a jail and be able to love the people there. Oh, and not the ones with just the cool crimes. You know, the, the, somebody who's a, who's a gang member, because they got tats, right? And you're talking to them, and you're going to the, visit them in the jails. And you're, you're trying to relate Jesus Christ to their need of sin. But they've got cool crimes. They hold their guns like this. Two of them. Oh, but today, there are no gang members in the jail, just a pedophile. I was going to get my cool points up, talking to a gang member, not have to labor at loving somebody who really doesn't deserve it. None of us deserve it. This is because God is good that we are loved by him. And that people are loved by you is because you are good, not because they are good and add to your cool. So you know it's a labor. You know it's a labor to understand. You know that it's a labor to actually do. Because, as the Lord says, if we're nice to those who are nice to us, how different are we from the Gentiles? Anybody can do that. You've got the wonder of what we have in Christ is that we can love people that are unlovely to you about the things you care about. This is what Paul's remembering about the Thessalonians. Their work of faith, their labor of love, the steadfastness, that has to do with endurance. It's not just a hope that after you went to a seminar on end times and you have to think about the pearly gates for a while or how cool it will be when the, if you believe in a rapture, when the rapture happens. It's not just a kind of temporary excitement if there was a movie put out that kind of illustrated. It's an endurance, a steadfastness of hope means... <clears throat> I was talking to somebody, I forget who, somebody. There are people who come through my house and I talk to them. I don't remember who you are. I just remember the conversations. And this conversation was on... Uh, not on end times in particular, we we're commenting on the nature of end times tendency, and that is to always believe that if you have an end times view, you tend to believe you're in them. You know, it's always this generation. It's always the imminent return of our Lord. Now, I can't say it isn't going to be in this generation, but uh, there is a pattern. When it was the 1840s, it was going to happen in the 1840s. Um, now, what if you had a special word from the Lord? And I don't mean this as an attack on your eschatology. Word from the Lord. You woke up one morning. They're written on your ceiling in angelic script. Information that told you 
it wasn't going to happen for 10,000 years. Of course, last time I said that, 1980, Mount St. Helens went off that day. <laughs> Turned the sky black in Moscow and the, the heavens fell. Last time I said that. So you might want to, well, prepare. But say you had a word from the Lord that really, honestly, 10,000 years, you're going to die and be dead a long time before the end comes. Your hope. We don't tell ourselves that the, you know, I won't have to hope as long. We hope in what God will do. That even our hope, your world is going to end in 70 years or less. The end of the world, as far as you care, you'll be dead. And your hope will be answered. Do you have the endurance? Because Paul is praying for people that he's thankful for because these things are these key elements, faith, hope, love, you know those are centerpieces to Christianity, what we believe about the Lord Jesus, how we live ethically by love, and how we continue, well, that our hope is set on the next life, not on this one. Is that how you would be described? He says, for we know, brethren, beloved by God, that he has chosen you. We're thankful for you because you're like this. We're confident we know that you are chosen by God. Whatever your theology about that, not going there. Doesn't really matter. Our people, not only are they thankful for you because of your work of faith, your labor of love, and your steadfastness of hope, but are they confident that you are in the faith? I've been asked that question. Not only have I been asked about love, but I've been asked about, well, do you think they're a Christian? Well, I don't know. Nothing that says they're not. Isn't it just awful when, when somebody says, well, is he a Christian? Well, he says he is. Oh, man. Damned with faint praise. He says he is. I always give people the benefit of the doubt, right? Oh, why are you doubting that I'm saved? Well, because I can't say, I know that he has chosen you. There are some people I can't say that about. Oh, they're, they're really in the light. They're in the kingdom. Now, I'm not the mouthpiece of God that I know people's real state, but I know who I can say that about, like Paul said it about the Thessalonians. We know that he has chosen you. Why do we know that he has chosen you? Verse 5, you'll see that red word, for. Our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power, and in the Holy Spirit, and with full conviction. You ever think that the, 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 the uh, assurance is twofold? It's about how the message was received, and it's about how the message, 
the, the, the relationship of the message. Have you ever given the gospel to someone where it wasn't you just ticking off the, I've talked to X number of people about the Lord this week. Where you're trying to get something turned around. Or when the person was open to the word, the power, the Holy Spirit and the conviction, and you were speaking it. The word with power and Holy Spirit and conviction. You knew that both of you were doing this dance of evangelism. That's why Paul was confident that in Thessalonica, he had had this experience. Not just they had had the experience, he had had the experience. Because he goes on to say... After he says full conviction, you know what kind of men we prove to be among you for your sake. He's not just assessing how they heard the word, but how the word came out of him. And that the Holy Spirit was filling him with power. We wonder... You talk about dead churches, you talk about fake churches, fake e-churches, and then the fake e-churches start to tell you that, no, we're authentic, honest. It's on our brochure. In papyrus. We're authentic. We know that somewhere we're looking for the kind of passage of Christian life from person A to person B both first in evangelism and then in the walk, that is filled with those convictions, that power, that Holy Spirit, and that relationship to the Word, that on both sides of the equation. I've grown sometimes from bad men speaking true things. I've known that somebody, after the fact that, oh golly, they've been living in sin for all those years, and I didn't know. But they taught me Sunday to Sunday. The word can, you you feel a little bit, I'm grateful for it. I'm grateful for hearing the gospel from some charlatan on TV who was just trying to take our money, but he said the truth about Jesus Christ, and the truth was the truth. I believed and I was saved. But what a wonderful situation it is when you can find, as you go out in your life, wherever you end up, that you would find both sides of this equation living it the same way. Now, I've been thinking, you know, was it last summer I taught through South Thessalonians in the summer Bible study? Was it, I don't know, maybe two years ago, I don't know. It was a summer Bible study. And I was looking at my notes this morning on, on yeah, I wasn't tracking this, <laughs> different things were on my mind. And recently I've been talking to some believers, not of this congregation, who were concerned about the walk of the saints and their own, or the kind of leadership. Or I've been reading on the internet about various ministries that are really popular, going through some real difficult realizations about leadership, etc. It says, Paul, but if you go through this thinking in those terms, that Paul is rejoicing, thankful, confident, 
because of a relationship of teaching he had with the Thessalonians that was referenced this way. And this seems to be almost a, a constitution of ministry to ministered to. You know what kind... That's the verse I pulled out for the memorable verse down there. You know what kind of men we proved to be among you for your sake. We proved you know what kind. So much in Christian circles is banging some table with your shoe about some doctrine, getting this doctrine to rule the world, or this group and its ministry and its revivalism, this group, or this celebrity pastor. It's all about that. It's not about what kind of man did this pastor, this teacher, prove to be. I think it's one of the problems of our international access we put my sermons up on SoundCloud because you desperately want to listen to them again. I said, I'll be checking. What's the problem with that? Someone in Wook, Iowa doesn't know me from Adam, doesn't know how I treat my wife, doesn't know if my kids are obedient and in the Lord, doesn't know. They can't say, you know what kind of men we prove to be among you for your sake. That's almost a key element of a right ministry. Not because they could read the expression on your face, but you could come over to my house after church for dinner and see if under the stress of the Asian pork loin, I start to get snippy with the old lady. Or she snippy with me, should I suggest that? If the knife being wielded to carve the starts to be waved around in a threatening manner, what kind of person are we proving to be, for your sake, among you? Are you looking for those proofs in the people that teach you? If you're going to pick up a book from a Christian bestseller list, Go out there and use your interweb skills and find out what kind of person this is. We have watched in close succession awful sin revealed in very popular conservative teachers. What kind of men did they prove to be? And you, verse 6, became imitators of us and of the Lord. You realize how much it is necessary that you watch and prove what kind of men you are taught by? Because the right kind of growth in Christ is always imitation. When it says that to elders and Peter, not as one domineering over the flock, but setting an example. So we don't need more power-mad pastors. They're easy to come by. You want someone power mad, you know, join a football team. You know, you have a coach. If you want to... There's power mad people all over the place. But not in the church. We don't need that. We need people who set examples. 
And that's the kind of leadership you should seek. Because Hebrews right 13 here on the left hand side. Remember your leaders. Those who spoke to you the word of God. Consider the outcome of their life. And imitate their faith. You're supposed to. You. Your responsibility. In this shared moment of acceptance of the gospel. And growth in Christ. That the word and the power and the Holy Spirit and the conviction be evident in the life of the person who said it so that it could become evident in your life. Because it's the evidence. It's the life changed. It's not the, a theory about lives being changed. We're not faithful Christians because we believe that faith will change a man. We are Christians because we have been so changed. From what to what? Well, from that to that, obviously. The guy who preached to me, he used to be, and he is now. Like Pete said earlier about the guy who called his wife, and, and it was obvious to her it was a different man on the phone. Is it obvious to anybody who knows you that you're a different man on the phone? You're a different man in the company of the saints? Are you the same kind of Christian when you're not being valued because you're in the pulpit and have your microphone? You became imitators. You received the word for you received the word in much affliction with joy inspired by the Holy Spirit, so that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. Look at what happens. When God wonderfully changes the pastors and the teachers and the evangelists, and they are walking around changed men because they're at peace with God. They know why, they know their teaching, and they know their God. And they're different that makes the kind of Christians who heard that gospel, I am preaching to you the changed life in Christ, the changed life is what I imitate. I hear of the Holy Spirit, but I imitate the effect of the Holy Spirit. And then people start imitating you. Our desire is not that all souls Christian would grow. We do have more seats. We could all put people up in the balcony. It'll be a while. Might never happen. But we want you all out there being the kind of Christians that other people want to be like. Your faith has gone forth everywhere so that we not say anything. You became an example to other believers. We shouldn't be preaching anything that isn't riveted in someone's mind. Remember, everyone in their sins is trying to sin to produce the peace that they are without. They will seek the pleasure, they will seek the drugs, they will seek whatever it is, pride, ambition, whatever it is, to get the peace that all men need, and you have it. If you have Christ, you have it. Now, are you an example to all the believers? 
So much so that the people who ministered to you, because they were examples, St. Paul, are thanking God for you, for your effect in your life. Because not only would you take it as an example, you became an example. So that you don't have to say anything. So the, the, the apostles writing you a letter. You know how it is when my father talks to you on the street and says, hey, we should get together sometime. You know you're in trouble. Because he would never talk to you unless he had heard something. But what if he did? What if he just said, yeah, I just wanted you to come over for lunch because I wanted to tell you how impressed I am with you. That hasn't happened to me yet. And I'm his favorite son. St. Paul doesn't need to say anything more to the Thessalonians because the key thing in Christ is happening. But we replace that. We want to have you do know I have doctrine, right? You've heard that I have had doctrine. I have doctrines. Just like the big boys, just like the professional pastors. And it's weird doctrine. It's weird on all levels. It's so weird, I can't trust you with it. You say, well, why don't you ever preach on it, Evan? Fear of arrest. That's one. But there is uh, a desire that you have what I have. Not that you have my doctrine. That's a different thing altogether. That's just a curiosity. That's just an interesting theological debate about stuff that's interesting. I want you to have what I have. And I don't think you need my doctrine to have it. But too many groups are trying to form up a doctrinal base. Everybody agreeing. Everyone on the same page. But when he says in Romans, welcome the weaker brother, but not for disputes over opinions, it doesn't seem to be that doctrinal agreement is part of our imitation. Doing and thinking what I tell you to do and think, that's really desirable for someone who is already inclined to have a pulpit already has an opportunity once a week. I don't know how many people are here. It looks like it might be 45, something like that. Not a lot. But how many of you have 45 people once a week able to tell you what I think? And there you sit, hopefully scribbling furiously on the back of your sermon notes, what I think. That's a desirable thing. I really desire that. I like that. I'm a man, right? Do I want you to have doctrine like mine? Do I want you to do what I tell you to do? Or do I want you to enjoy your life in Christ Jesus as much and as completely as I enjoy mine? As soon as you ask that question, you wonder if some of the most famous teachers in the faith today, you wouldn't want to enjoy your Christian life as much and as completely as they enjoy theirs. 
Many of them aren't happy. Many of them are not at peace. Some of them are in deep sin, as we find out. Verse 9, for they themselves report concerning us what a welcome we had among you, and how you turned to God from idols to serve a living and true God, and to wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. There's a reportage about you. There is proving to be. You know what kind of men we prove to be among you. Empirical data. What are they like? I was talking to someone this week who was talking about their Christian leadership and the group they were in and it was well they're not very nice. They lose their temper at people all the time. All. Yelling at the saints. Not in the power of a convicting sermon sort of yelling, but losing their temper with some worker. Ask yourself the question, what's the empirical data? What do they prove to be? Do you want to be like that? A servant is not greater than his master. Whatever masters you pick, whatever rabbis you listen to, do you want to enjoy your life in Christ Jesus just the way they're enjoying theirs? Do you want as much successful in your marriage, your success in your marriage, as they're having in theirs? Now, when I simplify it and say nothing less than faith, hope, and love, nothing less than the power of the Holy Spirit and the full conviction, the word. It, because it's not doc, that's not doctrinal, you know, uh, that's not the storyline of the gospel. It says faith, hope, and love, and you can buy a plaque at Bed Bath and Beyond that says faith, hope, and love, cut out of metal and burnished with something. You can hang it above your fireplace because they are godless at Bed Bath and Beyond. Because words like faith, hope, and love are like live, laugh, love. You know, it's, it's that nonsense. Faith, as long as you believe in yourself. People don't know what the gospel is. Paul does know what the gospel is. I want to remind you that even though I'm talking to you about a changed life, and you might say a doctrine-free zone at All Souls Christian, and people go, oh, this is great. I can believe anything I want. No, you can't. You may not. We also believe in objective truth, and we believe in the gospel of the Lord Jesus. There in verse 9 and 10, how you turn to God from idols, serve a living and true God, to wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. There's a good load of Christian doctrine right in those two verses. It's what you believe in faith. But I want to stress to you that your pastors and your lives need to be alive. Or you don't belong there. If you're not seeing the life of Christ, where you're learning, in whom you're learning it from, stop learning from them. It didn't work for them. You say, but I think they're right. I don't care. What proof do you have? It didn't work for them. 
For you yourselves know, brethren, chapter 2, verse 1, that our visit to you was not in vain. He's hanging this all on their knowledge of what happened. That though we had already suffered, had been shamefully treated at Philippi, that's where they were singing in the prison, they were beaten, Paul and Silas. As you know, Philippi is just down the coast from Thessalonica. As you know, we had courage in our God to declare to you the gospel of God in the face of great opposition. For our appeal does not spring from error or uncleanness, nor is it made with guile. Now why am I going on? Because when you don't have a life to recommend to people, okay, you will, as a ministry, settle on something less. Loyalty to a theology, loyalty to a group, loyalty to a man. Because they're not trying to convey to you a life they've enjoyed in Jesus Christ. So they're, they're up to something else. And when they're up to something else, it's got to provide something else to get you in that group, or it's going to fold. It's going to go bankrupt. So they've got to lie to you. Or they've got to get you involved. All sorts of ways of moving you doesn't spring from error or uncleanness. If it doesn't spring from a changed life, you can be darn sure it's springing from error and uncleanness. Your vision of the people that teach you, look into their lives. You know, looking at church history is a little, again, like that whole sausage-making thing. You don't want to know. You don't want to know how sausages are constructed. But they're so good. <laughs> church history, there are people that you think are... My wife was reading a biography of a famous Christian by someone who really admired this famous Christian. And the story was told was being true because it was written by someone who admired this famous Christian. And as you read through this famous Christian's life by this famous Christian who liked this famous Christian, he went, I don't want to be like this person at all. This person's got some real issues. This person is a little rotten to other people. They insist on their own way all the time. Love does not, by the way, insist on its own way. But then you read about someone like R.C. Chapman. If you ever get a chance to get the little book of Agape Leadership, Plymouth Brethren, 1800s, just a godly man. When you start to look into some people, people who don't agree with your theology at all, say, for instance, a Presbyterian. I tried to pick, randomly pick the worst possible theology I could think of. Somebody with reformed notions, and then you read about a godly man whose life was exemplary. Be it Richard Baxter or, or, or Jonathan Edwards. Read. Read looking for their life because the benefit of what they say is either just trumped up Christian, I learned this at seminary, this is what you're going to get told. They're not recommending a life they have. 
It's going to be made by guile. But as, verse 4, but just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak. Not to please men, because if you're not a great representative of something that men want, you're trying to figure out how to deceive them, how to get them into your group, donating regularly to your coffers, making you at least stable in your life financially, we start to please men rather than to please God. Because obviously if you're not a different person by the gospel of Jesus Christ, you're having to choose now what you're going to appear like. And you're going to want to please the people that are looking at you. But we're trying to please God. Not to please men, but to please God who tests our hearts. We're getting tested on all fronts about what we're like. You're getting tested on all fronts by what you're like. You know, we all know you. Right? We come to church with you. Now, I'm very thankful that you're not a gossipy church. That's really, it's really refreshing. People don't gossip about each other. We all know you. And guess what? Pretty much everybody in this room has an opinion about you. I wonder what it is. I don't want you going up to everybody after grabbing them by the lapel and saying, okay, what do you think about me? Really, <laughs> honestly. I used to have that happen to me back in my youth, early days of the big house, people who lived there. I'd let them know, I have an opinion. If you ever want it, ask me. And they'd come to me like Nicodemus in the night and say, can we go out to coffee? Sure. Do you want to know? No. Well, talk to me when you do. A few weeks later, I want to know. I'm willing to listen to it. I'd go out and tell them. Stuff. People have those views. People examine you. People have judgments. Oh, they may not be right. They might think you're, a, you know, uninteresting. And you really are really interesting. I know that. I let that compliment be reflected in the giving. Verse 5. God tests our hearts. For we never used either words of flattery, as you know, or a cloak for greed, like I just did. I flattered you. You owe me money. People love to hear their group, our side, our doctrine, my loyalties. Yay, we're the best. Everybody's making judgments. Are you making judgments like Christ? Pleasing God in seeking your teachers, imitating your teachers, or are you susceptible to flattery? And in flattery, really, nothing is too gross or too large. All of you ladies this morning are lovely. You know I'm lying, right? And you're saying to yourself right now, but he's not lying about me. <laughs> he's lying about some of the other ones, but not me. I know that. You can take that to the bank. False, gratuitous, might be reflected in the giving, but what if I was good at that? And it wasn't telling you what I was doing. Flattering people, pleasing you, Telling you the way you are is actually pretty good. And then the plate gets passed. And you say, well, I'm going to keep this man on the job. Right? Keep him established. 
make sure he has money for his needs. A cloak for greed, as God is witness, nor did we seek glory from man. When it is not moved by the changed life, faith, hope, and love, the power of God and the gospel, the word of God and the gospel, it's going to be moved by something else. And believe me, much of the church is moved by this. Greed, you see it all the time. Glory, nor did we seek glory from men, whether from you or from others. They had this great relationship between the Thessalonians and Paul based on their example in power and the Thessalonians' imitation of it in power to be examples to other people. But it wasn't to get glory from the Thessalonians because you know what it's like to be complimented. You know what it's like to be honored. God made us such that honor feels really good. That's why he tells us, honor one another, right? Honor your father and mother, outdo one another in showing honor. Why do we do that? Because it makes the other person feel good. Now, if someone starts to be moved by getting it, God made sex too. But if you're moved by getting it, God made food. If you're moved by getting it, you become a glutton, you become a fornicator, you become an arrogant son of a whatnot. If you seek the glory, you seek the greed. And from, whether you, from you or from others, though we might have made demands as apostles of Christ, is when you think that these guys who are far less than an apostle and far less changed than an apostle and far less powerful in their teaching and understanding than an apostle, they're making demands of their churches. Because if it ain't the greed and it ain't the glory, it's going to be the power. Because those are all the desires of the flesh, right? Not desires of the eyes and the pride of life. Churches will run on the things of the world because they're not able to run on the power of God in the changed lives of the believers. We were gentle among you, like a nurse taking care of her children. So, being affectionately desirous of you, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own selves because you had become very dear to us. I want you to go back over this passage and look at the relationship of apostles of God to a believing church that had believed rightly to see the kind of relationship that was and the kind of relationship that they strongly stated we did not become part of. We did not do this to please you. We did it to please God. We did not do this for money. We did not do it for glory. We did not do it for, for power. We did it because we were gentle people, and we were affectionate people, and we were sharing people. See those, those words there in those verses? We were gentle, being affectionately desirous. We were ready to share with you. And again... It's not because we're trying to create a church of St. Francis of the Sissies. That a bunch of spineless Christian men being lapdogs to slightly more dominant Christian women 
No, we're not trying to do that. This is the power of God that we are made into nice people. That we are affectionate to the followers of Jesus Christ. We are gentle with them. Oh yeah, you still got to go correct them when it says in Galatians, if anyone is overtaken in a trespass, you who are spiritual, restore them in a spirit of gentleness. It's not gentleness like you're some little daffodil in the kingdom of God. It's the gentleness of a strong person able to treat delicately situations of sin in front of you. You're gentle because people are breakable. Not because you're breakable. Verse 9. For you remember our labor and toil, brethren. We work night and day that we might not burden any of you while we preach to you the gospel of God. You are witnesses, and God also, how holy and righteous and blameless was our behavior to you believers. For you know how, like Father with his children, we exhorted each one of you and encouraged you and charged you to lead a life worthy of God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. The last thing you need to see on that page is you are witnesses for you know how. This is pointing you to a life worthy because you can see the difference. Look for the difference. Find the believers who are leading a life worthy of God. You want to have word matched by life so that your life will match the word. Let's thank God. Dear Lord, we are grateful. Be merciful to us. Have us be great representations of your son's gospel. That our lives, when looked upon by all of our fellow believers, would be the kind of thing they would want to imitate. And that we would find those that we would want to imitate. We would find the peace of your son, his gospel, and his great return. In your son's name we pray. Amen.